I've been preaching through Psalm 51 this Advent season, and uh, it's kind of, it started to make the Christmas carol bother me a little bit. Charles Dickens' Christmas carol, Christmas classic, right? Because here's the thing. So, he meets a couple ghosts overnight, Christmas, past, present, future, and then, right, he wakes up, and it's, what day is it today? It's Christmas Day. Yay, right? And he's, hey, is that goose still hanging in the window, right? And go buy the one as big as me. Like, go, go buy it, right? So he buys this goose. He goes and he, he attends a couple parties, and it's kind of like, ah, close the book. Everything, everything's great, right? Just buy a goose, and everything's good. You remember what Scrooge has been for the last 40, 50 years of his life? Right? He's been... That's right. He's been, he has been ruining dozens and dozens of lives every year for decades. He charges poor people interest rates, which they can't afford, they can't pay. He seizes their homes, he seizes their livelihoods. How many deaths has he caused? We get a little vignette of that right in Tiny Tim. We see that his uh, stinginess and his policies are, are leading Tiny Tim towards uh, doom. So he buys a turkey and a couple fixings that he takes to his nephew's feast, and then we're supposed to be like, oh, okay, that's good enough. I don't know. Thinking about David, thinking about Scrooge, you know, it raises the question of redemption. And that's the question that David raises this morning in verse 13. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Then I will, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Is, is that right? Should, is that okay? Should David be doing this? Right? He, is, he is the failed king of Israel. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. What does he deserve? He deserves multiple death penalties. He doesn't deserve to be Israel's king. He's, but then I'm going go, to jump back under the throne and I'm going to start telling people what to do. Is that right? I don't know if that's right or not. It raises the question for us, an important one to think about, what does God do with somebody like David? What does God do with somebody like King David? Which is a really important question for us to work through because it relates to this question. What does God do with someone like me? What does God do with someone like you and me? You know, David has is, is confessed his guilt. He's confessed his shame. Right, we all have guilt and shame in our lives. And, and one of the questions that we all wrestle with, with is, are we marred for life? Reduced, sidelined, and made useless by the guilt and shame that we all carry with us. There's a cultural observer who I follow pretty closely named Alan Jacobs. And, and he was talking about sort of the, uh, the rise in extreme ideologies that we've seen in America over the last decade or two where it's really sort of coalesced in these, these really uh, loud and, and kind of almost, uh, philo- like they, they don't make philosophical sense. They're not really logical. We see this, this outsized emotion and these incoherent policies and demands. He talks about how they, they lack a clearly defined contour 
because they're not actually ideologies. Instead, they're coming from a place of cult where, because our culture feels defiled. And so we want to be made clean, and we're so angry at the shame and guilt that we now are living with. And so we're acting in these ridiculous ways to try to somehow justify ourselves, to somehow make ourselves, make it okay by acting out in these ways. You know, you come to Psalm 51 and David says, oh, wash me and cleanse me. And we're like all these ancient, you know, these, these ancient primitive people who, oh, they thought that sin left a stain on you and it had to be washed. That's actually a pretty sophisticated observation that all of us think about it for a second. You feel the truth of that. We all have a sense of stain, a sense of shame on us. And so many Christians that I've talked to over the years of being a pastor and and invited into some sort of role in the congregation feel like they are prevented from being significantly useful to God because, well, maybe they were too sinful for too long before coming to faith. I can't. Uh, or maybe they feel like, you know what, I was just too sheltered. What, what, I, I, I don't have anything to... I don't have one of, those, one of those stories. They feel like they're too loud. I'm going to say the wrong thing. Or I'm too bookish. I'm too quiet. I don't know if I'll ever say the right thing. I'm too prone to having a bad temper. I'm too prone to certain kinds of temptations. And so we want to think this morning about what does God actually look for in His servants? What qualifies a person, makes a person useful and valuable here within the kingdom of God? This is the question that David raises that we're going to look at here in Psalm 51, 13 to 17. So let's actually start with verses 16 and 17. You'll notice that the first word in verse 16 is the word for. So David is about to explain something that is underneath what he says in verses 13 to 15. He's going to explain what we need to understand in order to answer those questions. And what we first need to understand is something about God. What does God delight in and what does God not delight in? Important questions. What does God delight in? What does God not delight in? What does he say here in verse 16? He begins with what he does not delight in. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. Now, you might have noticed as Tony read that in verses 18 and 19, it talks about giving right sacrifices and burnt offerings and all this kind of stuff. But here he says, God does not delight in those things. That is that God does not want merely religious outward acts of worship. You know, it's so so, uh, common in all religions to just be okay with outward displays of remorse or outward displays of celebration. Think about the prophets of Baal facing off with Elijah on Mount Carmel, cutting themselves, dancing around, reciting the same phrases over and over again, laying on the ground, standing on one leg. You know, who knows what all they're doing. They're going all this sort of outward stuff. Because why? Because all of the other gods, because there are no other gods, right? All the other gods which are just figments of our imagination, can't see the heart. Because we can't see the heart. So they're satisfied with dancing around, cutting yourself, you know, doing sacrifices and, and going crazy with that stuff. But our God 
is the real God. And our God sees, what does He see? He sees all. What does He know? He knows all. And so what He desires, David says here, is He desires truth in the inward being. And He wants us to have a right spirit within us. You know, we want, we want, as we see in the book of Galatians where we're, where we're at when we're not in Psalm 51, we want a law that we can work. A law, rules, regulations that we can do so we can get a sense of self-righteousness that we think others will appreciate. They'll look on us and think that we're good. And then we project that desire onto God and then we congratulate each other for pleasing Him. You're, doing, you're such a good Christian. You're such a good Christian. Thank you for doing all you, you do. You're such a good Christian. But what does God actually want? Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. This is really important. God looks for people who have experienced real brokenness in themselves. People who have learned the lesson of verse 3. I know my transgression. Can you say that? I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Verse 5, I, I, this is what I know about myself now. I'm not just somebody who does sins. I'm a sinner. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I'm a sinner and I sin. I sin and I'm a sinner. Real brokenness in ourselves. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine recently and we're talking about the difference between hard circumstances that really depress us and we can talk about how they, they break us versus the experience of really disappointing yourself. Like sins catching you. Foolishness catching you. Your behavior or your lack of behavior. Things you should be doing that you don't do. Things that you shouldn't be doing that you do. Those things jumping up and presenting themselves to you so that your idea of yourself is, as Paul talks about in Galatians 2, torn down. That's a very different thing. And that journey that David's taken here is what he says God wants. I want a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. This is the real spiritual condition of having really failed and being in real pain because of it. Feeling like you have real and substantial defects. Like you are disqualified from having any hope of making a contribution to the ways of God. If I ask you to do something, if somebody asks you to help out in the church, you say, well, oh, hang on. I'm not very... I just, I, I, can't, I can't be... I don't do... I'm never going to... I'm just, why? Because you're broken? Because you know your sin? Because you know your weakness, your shame, and your folly? God wants precisely you. God wants people who have a deep experience of sin but who know God's mercy and love, 
who know Psalm 51 verses 1 and 2. I know your abundant steadfast love, your abundant mercy, God. I know my transgressions and I know who you are. This is who God is looking for. People who have a deep experience of brokenness and who know the mercy and love of God. And because this is what God wants, this is what God uses. This is what God wants. This is what God's going to use. Before we go any further here, I want to just draw your attention to one story in the New Testament that echoes this truth. Do you remember this? In Luke 18, Jesus tells us about the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector, who go into the temple to worship God. Do you remember this story? And the Pharisee, who is a very upstanding religious person, like think of the most, the, the most wisened and, and, and religious looking, best religious religion stuff person in our church, right? This is the Pharisee in the eyes of the, the people of Israel. And he stands up in the middle of this temple. He goes up to the front and listen to what he says. This is, this is amazing. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like, like this tax collector who is an unjust extortioning, probably an adulterer. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What's he saying? God, I'm so thankful that I'm doing it right. I'm, I'm so thankful that you're so thankful for me. <laughs> right? Like, I'm so thankful. And, and, and what is the, the tax collector doing? Who is socially ostracized, right? We've, we've talked about these tax collectors. They were the bottom of the barrel socially. They were bad guys. The tax collector stands far off. He won't even look at heaven, but he, he's striking himself saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. What does that remind you of? Psalm 51, right? Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And what does Jesus say? He says, one of those guys went home righteous, and it was the tax collector. The tax collector, Jesus says, was doing it right. That's the one I want. Not the Pharisee. That's the one I want. That's the one I'm going to use. So back in Psalm 51, because God delights in broken people who know His mercy and love, therefore, those people can be brought into redeemed use. They can be employed along with God in what God is doing. So verses 13 to 15, this is what God wants. This is what God now is going to use. And so this is what He wants the people who have taken a Psalm 51 journey from verse 1 to, to verse 12. This is what He wants us to do. This is extremely... I feel like I'm fumbling the football a little bit here because uh, this, this next bit may be the most... It may be the most significant thing I've said in a long time here that we've looked at together in Scripture in a long time. I try to only say significant things, and of course, all Scripture is, is significant. This is so, this is, this is really, this is almost made me nervous. I feel flustered, right? Like, I just want to make sure that you get this. Look at what, Look at what God wants David to do, what David wants to do here with his brokenness. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. 
what God wants us to do is to, first of all, teach grace. We saw how in verses 1 to 6, David learned some things. He learned some things about himself, about transgression and sin, and he learned some things about God. And those things that David learns through this experience of of destruction, of pain and ruin and brokenness, the things that he learns are things that sinners need to learn. Sinners are sinning in part because they have a wrong idea about themselves. They have a wrong idea about who God is. They have a wrong idea about how to be saved and what will wash them clean. They have a wrong idea about all of those things. But now, once we come to verse 13, now David knows the truth about those things. Now he knows the truth about God. And he knows the truth about himself as a sinner. He knows the truth about how sinners may be washed clean. Now he knows those who've experienced God's grace in their brokenness, they know what sinners need to hear. And if, listen, it's, it's so critical because if sinners don't hear the truth of verses 1 to 6, they're not going to come home to God. They are going to think they're okay or it's up to them to do it. They're going to think that all of the suggestions for self-improvement and betterment by the different communities and gurus of the world is the way to get washed clean and saved. They're going to think that God is angry and mean and judging them and that he's nobody that they want to have in their life. They've got all of these misconceptions that only the broken who've met the grace of God know the truth about. And if the sinners don't learn it, they're not going to come back to God. And who's going to tell them? Not preachers. (laughs) Nobody wants to talk to the pastor at the party. (laughs) Even though I'm just as broken and sinful as any of us. You know, we just sang for the broken. For the broken you came. Right? This is the sweetness of the Christmas story is that Jesus doesn't come to Caesar. He doesn't come to Herod's palace. He doesn't come to the places of power. and He doesn't join in with all the, the, the pretty, beautiful, rich, educated people. He goes to the broken people. And Jesus' ministry always attracted People like King David who were sinners who recognized that I've got no hope apart from God. And the message of Jesus Christ is that this is who God is. That God is uniquely interested in brokenhearted people and is uniquely present to them. And what David is saying in verse 13 of Psalm 51 is that God is uniquely present to the world through broken people. Jesus is uniquely present to broken people and then through broken people to other sinners in the world. In the service of God, friends, broken is not worse, it's better. The kingdom of God is the opposite of the Antiques Roadshow, right? In the Antiques Roadshow, you you know, people, right, I can't watch it, it's too stressful. 
You know, people bring in their heirlooms. They bring in these wonderful things. And, and they say, oh, well, this, this, oh, this is special. This, but, oh, see this here. See this crack here. Oh, see, well, it, it, it used to have one of these, but now that must have been lost. And so now it's worth five bucks. It, it was worth five million if you had that little extra wheel on there. Right? That's the opposite of the kingdom. We show up like Pharisees to God and we say, hey, look at me, I'm tithing, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm not an extortioner, I'm not a murderer. God's like, that's not that great of a thing to not be. Like, just calm down, buddy. But we we show up God ourselves and we say, look, and he says, oh, no, this would really be worthwhile, but do you see how there's no cracks in it? You see how it's got all the wheels still? Yeah, I just, I don't know. I mean, I can use it, but it's going to take some rough handling first. Right? If, I, if I put this forward, how are they going to know about the truth about me? How are they going to know the truth about my grace? How are they going to know the truth about my son, about my love? If I, if I put somebody forward who, who, who's like, well, I'm doing it all, I'm doing it right. How are you going to glorify Jesus? Looking so nice. Here's the... Here's the that's an awesome truth. Let's go even, let's go even higher here. Because now look at verse 13 again. It says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Now, David says, I want to teach transgressors your ways. Now look back in the psalm. Who else is doing teaching? Go look, do it. Who else is doing teaching in our psalm? Verse 6, you see it? God says, David says, you, Lord God, want to teach us wisdom in our secret heart. God is trying to teach us sinners something we need to learn and know and get in order to be saved. Paul talks about this with Timothy. He says, the scriptures are able to make you wise to salvation. The wisdom that God's teaching here is not... um, you know, wisdom of, uh, for life and business, success in life and business. That's not what this is. This is wisdom for the way of salvation. And God is trying to teach us that in our secret heart. What does God use to access the deepest self of sinners? God uses other sinners who have stories of brokenness, in grace. He's teaching us wisdom in our secret heart through broken sinners who know the truth about him. So when we when we tell our stories, when we share our experience of broke of grace in brokenness, we're joining the work of God and we're accessing the secret heart of the people in our lives. Sinners don't listen to people who tell them all of their sins. Sinners don't listen to people who tell them they just need to get more sleep and improve their nutrient profile in their supplements. Sinners don't listen to people who just tell them, hey, just just get it together, man. Sinners 
right? Because you're a sinner. You know what you listen to. You know what you love to hear. You love to hear stories of grace and brokenness from other sinners. That's what we listen to. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.16, one of my favorite passages, favorite verses, it's Paul and Timothy, writing to Timothy, he says, I received mercy for this reason, so that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You and I receive mercy for this reason, so that in us, in our experience of grace and brokenness, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience to other sinners, so that they might think, huh, maybe I've been wrong about God for the last 50 years. Huh, maybe I've been wrong about the way of salvation and being washed clean from all of these things that the world's been selling me for the last 40 years. Huh. I want to say something now that might sound like a little bit of a detour, but it's actually extremely related. Uh, in, the, in Paul's writings to Timothy and Titus, he, uh, he lays out the qualifications or maybe the disqualifications for elders. And when you go and you look at 1 Timothy 3 and you look at that list, it's mostly all just sort of like basic Christian godly man stuff, which is good, right? That's what we're supposed to be. But there's one little one that, that trips a lot of people up, and that is um, apt to teach, which is like able to teach and wants to teach. And the same kind of thing is in Titus chapter 2, where Paul talks about the, uh, the godly older women, the wise women, who are tasked with teaching the younger women what is good. Teaching. Involved in both of these roles, right? Now, we tend to, to think about that as, okay, so if, are you good at public speaking, right? Is that, that's it. Or, or you're just the kind of person that you're, uh, what we might say kindly, is you're a good talker, which, you know, is code for you talk too much, right? <laughs> is that what that means? I don't think so. I think Psalm 51 helps us understand what that means. Apt to teach, able to teach the younger women what is good means you've been on the Psalm 51 journey. And you can explain grace to broken hearts because you've been there. And you want to explain grace to broken hearts you know, so many people I talk to about, about taking a more leadership role in the church or a more of a leadership role in mentoring and discipling people, they say, I couldn't do that. I don't want to. I... They think that it means you have to be like some kind of Jedi with the Bible. Like people are just going to be like, what's Isaiah 30 say? And you go, oh, this. <laughs> like, like you're proving yourself all the time or like, you know, prove the Trinity and you got two minutes, go. Like just, that's never happened to me. It's almost never, almost never happened to me <laughs> in 14 years of being here. But you know what has happened to me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times is sinners coming and in various ways saying, my heart's broken. Is there grace for me in God? You don't have to know all the theology. You don't have to know every passage of Scripture intimately. What you have to know and what you have to be leaning into to teach to the people of God and to the world it's the truth about the grace of God. 
and His love for broken people. We just so often think that God assesses us based on our education. Oh, I've never, I've never been to our uh, eloquence, our skills, or our network, or our, our wealth, or other measures, worldly measures. God uses people who've experienced His grace in their brokenness. His grace in their brokenness, that's who God wants to use. Verses 14 and 15 here. David says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. I will sing aloud of your righteousness, and my mouth will declare your praise. So God wants us to teach grace, and He wants us to sing His praises. Singing is actually, interestingly enough, considered part of teaching by the Apostle Paul. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching each other with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's an interesting connection, isn't it? That there's something about these truths that in order to uh, convey them truly honestly involves singing. You know, they deserve to be sung because they're so significant. But they're also the truths that set us free. And there's a connection with singing and freedom, isn't there? Like, why do you sort of feel reluctant to sing in church? It's because you're you're more self-aware or you're, I I don't want to be heard. There's, There's a lack of freedom. Singing and freedom correlate. These are truths that set us free. We sing this song. Do you remember this? What though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. That's the kind of freedom that these truths give us. We're we're free from the shame and guilt that we've carried. We're we're washed clean. We're, We're made new. These Truth set us free, and it takes a kind of a freedom to sing. It's interesting how Paul in Ephesians 5, he compares, uh, he compares Christians singing with people being drunk. Which, maybe they just weren't good singers in that church, I don't know. But no, it, it speaks to that connection between freedom and, and these truths. And I think lastly, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here on these two verses, but we are to sing because these truths should be sung and declared because the world is noisy. You feel that? How do I talk to these people? They're just so, everything's flat. The world is so noisy. How are sinners going to hear So sing, open your mouth, and declare your praise. And so, lastly, here's what what we are led to do with this in our lives. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God, what God wants. He wants sacrifices. He's not saying, I don't want sacrifices. He's saying, I want a certain kind of sacrifice. Sacrifice your broken spirit. 
Sacrifice your broken spirit. Have you experienced the grace of God in your brokenness? And if you have, what David is saying God wants is for us to give that to Him. To give it to Him to use. How do you feel about that? To give that to God to use. Psalm 51, therefore, invites us to put our stories, to put our songs on the altar of God for Him to use. And I know that this is hard because, right, our brokenness is not our favorite thing about ourselves. It's a bad chapter in our story. We have better things that we would like to tell you about. Well, when I was in high school, I finished first in this. When I was in college, I got this award. When, right, let me tell you, what's on our resume is not our brokenness, but what God wants is our brokenness. So the brokenness is not our favorite things about ourselves, but, but these are the stories in our lives that glorify Jesus. These are the things in our lives that other sinners want to hear, right? None of the sinners in your life want to hear about how great you are. <laughs> But we would all love to hear about that time. (laughs) Sinners want to hear the truth. And they want to hear the truth about God. And they need to hear, they need to hear some right information about God for once. And you've got it. You have got it. That's redemption. That's redemption. When the broken bones sing. When broken people tell of the grace of God to them. Psalm 51 is that. Right? We have this record here 3,000 years later because David was willing to put his brokenness on the altar and give it to God to use for sinners. I'm thankful for that. And we are all qualified to be a part of that work because we are broken people who know God's grace. And if you're a broken person who knows the grace of God, then this is your work. This is God's work through you. Would you stand with me? We're going to take a moment to pray together. I want you to think, if you are willing to do this, to think about your experience with God, and if you're willing to follow Him in this. And then we're going to all practice this together. We're going to sing the praises of our God and testify to His grace in our brokenness, singing, All I have is Christ. But right now, take a moment, silence and solitude. Talk with the Lord about whether you're willing to Put your experience of grace in brokenness in His hands and ask Him what that might mean. Let's do that for a minute and then I'll pray and then we'll sing together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think about our brokenness this morning, We're filled with sorrow, maybe even a renewed sense of shame, pain. 
We think about the people we've hurt. We think about the opportunities we've lost or ruined. And it's hard. But we also know you. And you have met us in our brokenness. We met Jesus there. And Lord, we're so thankful for your grace, your mercy, your steadfast love. Despite all we bring, you bring healing, salvation, cleansing, and you offer redemption as well. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts. There are represented here this morning dozens of extraordinary stories where you have poured out grace upon broken sinners. And there are represented here as well dozens of other sinners who don't know the truth about you because they've never heard it from a broken sinner. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for your light shining upon us this Christmas season. We're so thankful for your grace and mercy. We ask simply now that as we celebrate you, as we rejoice in you and all that you've done for us, that you would use that rejoicing, use that celebration, use our stories. We pray that you would open doors for the word in our lives and that you would give us courage there to open our mouths and sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.